And here we go, everybody. Another edition of Jamal About Sports coming to you on a Tuesday. August 21st, 2018, kicking off the show, Drifting Falling by the Ocean Blue. One of my uh, favorite late 80s, early 90s college bands. Thanks for joining us. As always, I am your host, Jamal Hayden, flying solo this evening. We've got a big show to get to. We've got lots of Major League Baseball, including yet another (laughs) ignominious way for the Mets to lose. You can't make this stuff up. We'll go around the league, talk about who's hot, who's not, as we wind down the long slog that is the Major League Baseball season. We've got about, what, five, six weeks now left in the regular season. Plenty still left to be decided. We'll also talk some NFL Preseason two weeks in the book. We've got the third preseason week coming up, which, as everyone likes to call, is the dress rehearsal. Typically, you'll see the starters play at least a half, maybe even into the third quarter in the third preseason game. Focus a little bit on the Lions and the Giants since they played each other in week one. Talk about some of the other hot topics around the NFL, including this ridiculous helmet rule uh, that's been quite the source of consternation, and rightfully so. Um, But we begin with the Mets. And look, you know, the Mets went on an 11-game road trip and actually played pretty well, went 7-4. And and because this has been such a disastrous season in so many ways, you know, the record notwithstanding – you know, all of the idiotic decisions, the way this organization continues to embarrass itself on an almost daily basis from the cowardly owners who hide in their executive suites and never say a word uh, to, look, I'm nothing against John Ricco or J.P. Ricciardi or even Omar Minaya. Um, and this is the situation that they were put in, again, by ownership. Um, but... I mean, the decisions that the Mets make are, as an organization, uh, defy all logic. And you saw it manifest itself and rear its ugly head last night. There's, so let me set the stage. 13th inning, Mets are tied 1-1 in a game in which Zach Wheeler, one of the few bright spots of the season for the Mets this year, and he's been probably, other than Jacob deGrom, the biggest bright spot. He's pitched phenomenally well now for about two months. He's been one of the best pitchers in baseball since early June. Um, Pitched a great game against the Giants last night. Seven innings, five hits, one run, only one walk, ten strikeouts. And had a situation early in the game when the the Mets actually scored a run in the first inning for him. Um, Even though Mickey Calloway continues to play Jose Reyes, continues to play uh, Joey Bats, in the outfield. Someone named Jake Reinheimer was starting in left field uh, for some reason, for reasons known only to Mickey Calloway. Jeff McNeil on the bench after he had a very good game against the Phillies and had a nice road trip because there was a lefty on the mound. See, because you wouldn't want to see what Jeff McNeil, who might be part of your future, we wouldn't want to see what he could do against a left-handed pitcher. And by the way, it wasn't Madison Bumgarner. It was Derek Holland, who's mediocre at best. But there's Jose Reyes starting at second base last night because he's a right-handed hitter. Well, he's a switch hitter, but you get the point. But I digress. 
So, uh, fifth inning, Mets up one nothing. Couple of back to back hits by the Giants, neither of which were hit very hard. But the second was kind of down the line, kind of a broken bat. Certainly should not have been a double. But because somebody named Jake Reinheimer, who's an infielder by trade, is playing left field, because again, we couldn't play Michael Conforto against a left-handed pitcher. No, 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 no. (laughs) Jake Reinheimer, whoever he might be, is a right-handed hitter. Uh, So he's in left field. He's not an outfielder. He has a chicken wing for an arm. Throws a, makes one of the more embarrassing throws you'll ever see, and the ball ends up being a double. So now it's second and third, nobody out. Wheeler proceeds to strike out the next three hitters. Now, granted, it was the bottom of the, of the, the Giants lineup, including the pitcher, but nevertheless, the old Zach Wheeler probably crumbles in that spot. Probably gives up, you know, and, and maybe through no fault of his own, gives up a, a blue pit, scores two runs, walks a guy, you know, so, something would have gone terribly wrong there. But not this version, not the guy we've seen mature and turn into the pitcher that everybody thought he could be when the Mets traded for him seven years ago when they traded Carlos Beltran to the Giants for Wheeler. So that was thrilling to see. Um, And then in the seventh inning, the only reason he gave up a run was after a, a couple of blue pits... Uh, the third run with two outs scored because the Mets, in their infinite wisdom, had a shift on against a left-handed hitter whom Wheeler had beaten with a fastball all game long. So instead of Rosario just being positioned in his normal spot at shortstop, he was basically playing behind the bag, as if the hitter for the Giants had any prayer of hitting the ball up the middle, of pulling the ball, or even hitting it up the middle. So what happens? Wheeler jams him inside. He hits a, a jam job. That should have been an easy pop-up just to the barely into the outfield grass for the shortstop Rosario to make. But instead, because he's swung all the way over towards second base, it was just out of his reach, and that scored to tie the game. And I've said this all year. The Mets, and I understand teams shift all the time, um, and again, this is another reason why I despise analytics. I shouldn't say despise analytics. I despise the way... They are relied upon blindly. Again, the numbers say, how about you watch what's happening in the game? And the fact that Wheeler, these guys couldn't get around on Wheeler if their lives depended on it last night. Nope, nope, nope. The numbers say. Okay. Well, cost you a game last night, Mickey. You dope. I mean, this Mickey Callaway, again, it's not his fault. This is what he was hired to do. He's hired there to just basically disseminate information, to look at spreadsheets and charts, and make decisions based purely on that. It's quite a sport baseball is turning into. Big article in the Times yesterday about the fact that there's way more, that, that there's almost going to be as many, if not more, strikeouts and base hits this year for the season across the sport. That's exciting to watch, isn't it? It's fun. Um, so that tied the game. The Mets, of course, couldn't score. They had first and third, one out in the eighth inning with Rosario, who'd shown some signs lately 
uh, with a real chance to show things were different. And, of course, he grounds into a double play. And, of course, Callaway on a 3-2 pitch refuses to send the runner at first. Because, God forbid, I mean, even if Rosario strikes out and it's a strikeout, throw him out, double play, who cares? These games are meaningless. And the Giants aren't in any sort of playoff contention either, so you can't even use the argument that for the integrity of the game, you've got to try to play to win the game. You play these games now, if you're the Mets, to see what guys who are supposedly going to be part of your core moving forward, what, what situations they can handle and which situations they can't. And that situation last night, tie game, first and third, eighth inning, fast runner on first, one out, not fast, but a fast enough runner in Conforto on first and one out. Rosario up, hit and run. Of course, he hits a ground ball. Of course, in that at-bat, he swung up three pitches that weren't, weren't anywhere near close to being strikes. Got completely nervous. And all the progress that he'd shown in about the last two weeks, right down the drain in that one at-bat. And grounds into a double play. So... Fast forward, 13th inning. Tyler Bachelor, minor league reliever the Mets like, who does throw hard, although, by the way, everybody throws hard now. The average major league fastball these days is like 94 miles an hour. It used to be 15 years ago. It was probably 89, 90. Um, so, but he's a hard thrower. He's shown a little ability so far. He's all over the place. He's wild. Doesn't command his off-speed pitches very well. But whatever. Fine having this guy in the game. He pitched the, uh, the 12th. He was good. Came out for the 13th. Gives up a hit on an 0-2 hanging curveball. Throws away a pickoff attempt at first base. Guy goes to second. Wild pitches the guy to third base. I mean, this is bad news, bad news bears kind of stuff. Um, gets an out. No, sorry. Walks the guy on... Oh, sorry, on a 3-2 pitch, also was the wild pitch walked a guy. So now it's first and third, and nobody out. Gets the next guy, Joe Panic, to pop up on the first pitch. Okay, one out. Buster Posey comes up, gets him to ground out to first base. Wilmer Flores, who I've said, his, he's a terrible fielder, but I thought maybe his best position would be first base. I was wrong, because now he has the yips, and he can't throw. So he, he sails, he lollipops the throw home. Mazzaracca did a good job of catching it and then making the tag and getting the guy out. It was a close play at home. It should have been, the guy should have been dead to rights if Flores just comes up and makes it a routine throw. But he's got the yips now. He's had a lot of trouble throwing the ball, throwing the ball to other bases, be it home, be it second base, wherever. So they got two outs. Now it's first and second, I guess. Next guy up, it's a routine pop-up to left field. Rosario's camped under it. Here comes Dom Smith, the overweight first baseman. To his credit now, has dropped a lot of weight and I guess isn't overweight anymore. But by nobody's definition is this guy an outfielder, right? Here he comes bounding in from left field to crash into Rosario to knock the ball out of his glove and the winning run scores. Because, of course, the Mets went down meekly in the bottom of the 13th. I mean... So there you have Wilmer Flores playing first base, who, again, we know what Wilmer Flores is. He's a nice right-handed hitter who generally crushes left-handed pitching, although he hasn't done very well against left-handed pitching this year, but he's shown an ability to hit righties fairly well, right? He's got his, what, 12 home runs, 47 RBIs, hitting 275. I mean, he's a decent extra player on your team. He's not a starter, 
because his fielding is atrocious, and frankly, he's not quite good enough offensively to play every day anyway. Certainly not, you know, if he was a great defender, you could probably justify keeping him in a lineup every day. But he's not only not a great defender, he's a subpar defender. And so, again, the Mets already know what he is. He's basically a DH playing at a position wherever he plays for the Mets. So you call Dom Smith up, who... In the beginning of the year, I understand. Look, he was supposed to be potentially the first baseman of the future. Okay. He got off to a rough start by being late to a meeting. Then, of course, he went and got hurt. This was all in spring training. He had a lousy season at AAA in a hitter's paradise. He's gotten a couple of cups of coffee up here this year. Hasn't shown much of anything. I understand that. But with, however, what, six weeks to go, as I said, in the season, in a lost season, Okay, and the Mets refused to call up their real first base prospect, Peter Alonzo, for reasons known only to them. One of which, hilariously, they like to try to say is because he's not a good defender. Right? Chronicled that on last week's show. Um, if you're going to play Dominic Smith, the only place you should be playing him is first base. That's it. To put him in left field is patently absurd. And it cost the Mets a game last night. But this is what you get. And then the Mets wonder why everybody piles on them. Because you have Wilmer Flores, who's not a first baseman, and not part of your future playing first base, and you have supposedly a potential first baseman of the future playing left field. And it costs you a game. And there's Jose Reyes playing second base, starting at second last night. And Jose Bautista playing right field, who on a, on, a, on, a, on a swinging third strike at a ball in the dirt that got away from the catcher couldn't be bothered to even attempt to run to first base. And the Mets are claiming they're keeping jo- Joey Bats, who, by the way, I don't hate. But I'm sorry, you can't claim to keep a guy around as a veteran presence and leadership if he's not even going to show the young players to run to first base on a pitch in the dirt that gets away from the catcher. Now, he probably wasn't going to be safe at first base anyway, but still, are you kidding me? He can't be bothered. He walked right back to the dugout. And there's Mickey Calloway with his George Michaels beard. Says nothing. I mean, you talk about a guy in over his head. What a clown. As my boy Chris Chris Russo would say, I mean, mean, this Mickey Calloway, he is some clown. Oh, boy. I mean, look, he seems like a nice enough guy. And I'm sure, you know, he was, I'm sure, a very fine pitching coach for the Indians. But trying to be the manager of the Mets <laughs> with, 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 with this quote-unquote brain trust running the show, I mean, almost anybody would be in over their heads. Joe Girardi would probably be one of the few guys that could actually make this team not a complete laughing stock. And that's who needs to be the manager for the Mets next year. So, I mean, look. It's classic. The Mets have a guy in AAA at first base who's crushing the ball, killed the ball at AA, is killing the ball at AAA, won't call him up to play first. They're playing Wilmer Flores, who they already know what he is at first, and then their other potential first baseman of the future is playing left field, and it cost them a game last night. I mean, you can't make this up. And then again, the Mets plead defense with not calling up Peter Alonso 
except they play everybody else out of position. And he is a first baseman. And apparently has made significant strides. And again, what do you have to lose? Nothing. Season's lost already. Anyway, season was lost months ago. You know, God forbid the kid came up here and smashed, you know, 10, 12 home runs in the last six weeks and gave you a little juice, a little life, something to be excited about for next year. And if he doesn't, it's not the end of the world. Remember, Aaron Judge struck out like 90 times in 200 at-bats or something when he, when he got his call up three years ago. It's worked out okay for him. And then more Mets idiocy. You know, they're keeping Jason Varks in the rotation only because he's got another year left on his contract. Because if it was done on merit, he would either have been released by now or at the very least, he would have been put in the bullpen. Because Corey Oswell has actually pitched decently as a fifth starter. It's not great, but he's been decent. He's kept the Mets in a bunch of games. And I understand Vargas pitched okay his last two starts. I don't care. Again, it sets a terrible precedent. And I understand Todd Frazier is a good guy. I get it. That's great. If I never see Todd Frazier play another game for the Mets, it'll be too soon. I mean, think about it. The Mets signed Todd Frazier, Jay Bruce, Anthony Swarzak, Jason Vargas, and Adrian Gonzalez. Oh, remember him? He was going to be their other Mets first baseman. Five guys. All five have been unmitigated disasters. They've been abject failures, every single one of them. They didn't hit on one. That's almost impossible to do. So look, the only positives to take out of this season are the fact that maybe, just maybe, the owners will be shamed into hiring a real general manager. Not some kid they can manipulate who's just happy to have the job. And not some guy like Sandy Alderson who gets foisted upon them by Major League Baseball who have to drag out of retirement because they owe Major League Baseball a ton of money, which was the case with Alderson eight years ago or ten years ago, whatever the Madoff stuff was. Yeah, it was 08, right? So ten years ago. I mean, I know Omar was still the GM in 09, so I guess Alderson's first year was 10. So eight years ago. But they were still reeling from the Madoff thing, which is why Sandy Alderson was brought in to bring gravitas. A real adult in the room, except nothing has changed in the eight years Alderson has been here. Nothing. Other than a magic carpet ride for six weeks, eight weeks, sorry, ten weeks in 2015, nothing has changed. Brandon Nimmo gets hit on, uh, gets hit on the, uh, the knuckle with a pitch, Last week, Mets, oh, he's going to be fine. Probably be out a couple days. Oh, guess what? Didn't play for five days. Mets were a man short for five days. And then today they put him on the DL. Shocker. Shocker. Can't believe it. No way. Really? I mean, again, it's unbelievable how idiotic this organization is. So if you're trying to look for positives, obviously DeGrom. I actually watched the game on Saturday. He pitched great. It was against the Phillies, team in the division hunt, in the playoff hunt. 
He wanted that game badly. Complete game. Gave up one unearned run. It's the hardest. His three fastest pitches were his last three pitches. 98, 98, 99. You can tell the guy's a bulldog. His ERA is down to 171. He's, even though his record's only 8-7, and seven, he's firmly in contention for the Cy Young. There's precedent for it. Felix Hernandez uh, won it for the Mariners with only 13 wins six years ago, I think it was, 2012. So DeGrom, huge bright spot. Wheeler, huge bright spot. Nimmo, look, if you, if you surround Nimmo with the proper pieces in the outfield, right, and you would think that that could have been Cespedes, but you know, can't ever rely on him to play another game again if you're the Mets, if you're smart. And then Conforto, who unfortunately has had a miserable year. I know he's played better since the All-Star break, but he's not looked very good. By no means is he a sure thing. Um, but if you had two studs on either side or one in center or whatever, Nimmo can play center adequately. He could also play right. He can also play left. And as your leadoff hitter, you'd be fine. At worst, he's a valuable piece and, and, and a fourth outfielder who should get 300 to 400 at-bats a year. At worst. Who provides tons of energy, is an adequate enough fielder, he's got a little, he's above average speed on the base paths, and he's shown this year he's got some power. As evidenced by his, what, 14, 15 home runs. So he's been a nice bright spot. And then Gazelman has been a bright spot as a reliever. I don't know if he's ready to be a lockdown closer, but certainly should be a useful piece of a bullpen next year. And other than that, that's about it. I mean, again, I understand Rosario's looked better lately. Um, you know, and maybe I'm too harsh on, on him. But, I mean, you know, again, he dropped a pop-up last night. It, it ended up costing him. It was off the pitcher. Wheeler picked him up and struck him out on the next pitch. But, I mean, he dropped a pop-up in foul territory last night. You know, I told you about the at-bat in the eighth inning. Uh, the jury is very much still out on, on the Rosario. Put it this way. If the Mets try to use the ridiculous excuse in the offseason that they're not in on the Manny Machado sweepstakes because they have odd men Rosario at shortstop, I, that might be it for me. Now, if you're going to be honest and just say we don't have the money or we don't want to pay, they, don't, they have the money, we don't want to pay the type of money that's required to sign Manny Machado, that's a different story. At least that's honest. And I may not like it, but I can accept it because at least it's honest. But don't give me a, lunch, a bunch of horse shit that you're going to tell me that, oh, no, well, why would we send my, sign, sign Manny Machado? We already have Ahmed Rosario at shortstop. Please. By the way, if Ahmed Rosario is any good, or if anybody else thinks he's any good, then guess what? You sign Manny Machado and you trade Ahmed Rosario. All right, let's go around the majors. So... You know, AG was on here last week lamenting the fate of the Yankees. It's a little, it was a little tough to take. I mean, I love my man, but uh, and I understand they haven't played great and they've been about a 500 team. Look, we've said this for a long time now. Um, you know, the the Yankees right now. Look, they're you know they, they they're beating up on the bad teams. They beat up on the Blue Jays. Now they got the Marlins. You know, the record is great, right? What are they, 34 games over 500 now or something like that? But they do have some issues, All right? Judge is hurt. He's ta- this, is very, this is almost Met-like in the sense that the Yankees said he'd be back in about three weeks. 
And it's not going to be anywhere close to that. But at least, see, here's the difference between the Mets and the Yankees. Brian Cashman said, you know, usually we never do that. We always err on the side of caution. And, and, and if it's four to six weeks, we'll say six. We messed up in this, in this particular instance. He, he admitted it, he owned it, and he moved on. And then guess what? Then it doesn't become a story. See, but the Mets always have to hem and haw and come up with excuses and reasons and double speak and things that just, they just make it worse. They just dig the hole deeper and deeper. Cashman addressed it, move on. So in any event, uh, but the Yankees are in trouble. I mean, they've got, you know, look, unfortunately, it looks like this Clint Frazier is, is never going to get on the field, right, with the concussion issue. It's a major concern. Um, they've got Hicks and Gardner playing. Stan's trying to, to, to grind through. He's got a bit of a hamstring issue, although he's been hitting the hell out of the ball lately. You know, he's in hot mode right now, which that's who he is. You know, I try to tell my Yankee fan friends this at the beginning of the year, as a guy who watched him play 19 times a year at least, you know, there, will be, there were series against the Mets where he looked like you could give him, uh, you know, the, uh, uh, a barn door and he couldn't hit the ball. And then there were other series where the Mets couldn't get him out. But the Yankees have some injury issues. Now, it looks, uh, Gregorius just went on a 10-day DL. You hope for his sake and the Yankees' sake it's not going to be out for an extended period of time. But to heal bruise, anytime you're involved with the foot and stuff like that, it's always dicey. Lower leg injuries are always dicey for an athlete in any sport. Um, so, look, the Yankees have some issues. And Severino has not been good since the second half. And I understand he got the win the other day. He only pitched five innings. They gave up two runs. Now, the reliever came in and gave up the two runs for him, but the Yankees had to take him out in the sixth. He couldn't get out through the sixth inning, and the Yankees had a big lead. So that's cause for concern. So they've got some issues. Despite one of the best records, I think the second-best record in baseball, as a matter of fact, and in fact, let's go to the Google-ator and see what it gives me. Uh, Red Sox, by the way, incredibly 50 games over 500 with a run differential of plus 215. Uh, yeah, the Yankees are 78 and 46. I mean, they're 32 games over 500. Um, Indians are 20 over, so that would be uh, simple math to tell me the Yankees are better than them. The Astros, who have certainly come crashing back down to earth, Two and eight in the last ten. They're starting to get their guys back and healthy, though. And they're seventy-five and fifty, as are the A's. So in the American League, the Yankees easily have the second-best record. So right now, the Yankees are in no danger at all of not being the first wild card. Right? They'd be the first. Oakland would be the second. And then in the National League, you have nobody even close. I mean, the best record in the National League. Uh, right now are the Cubs at 71-52. They're not even 20 ga games over. They're 19 games over. By the way, Cubs just got Daniel Murphy today. Now, I don't know where he's going to play. He's going to play second base because that's where Javi Baez plays. Uh, he's going to play first because that's where Rizzo plays. Uh, Cubs going to trot him out at third base. Good luck, guys. Have fun. Have fun with that. <laughs> I know Brian's hurt, but uh, have fun with Daniel Murphy at third base. I mean, I know he can hit. We all know he can hit. 
Um, so yeah, I mean, Yankees had the second rest, second best record in baseball, and by a lot, by what is it, four games over over the A's. Um, but looks can be deceiving. There's there are some weaknesses there. So look, the last six weeks for the Yankees all about trying to get healthy, get Severino straightened out, try to identify who your second starter is going to be. Uh, you know, assuming well, look, actually, you know, what, you just want to get Severino straightened out. You worry about that other stuff later. Just get everybody healthy, get a full complement of your players, and get your ace. Hope hope he writes the ship by the the game one play in. That's it. You know, then you figure out the rest. You win that game, then you figure out you're going to pitch Tanaka, you're going to pitch Jay Happ, maybe Sabathia. It all depend. It all depend on matchups and who they're playing and all that stuff. You know, Jay Happ has been a nice addition. Won great the other day, but he's been pretty good. Um, but we look around the rest of the league. I mean, said all year the Indians are just going to coast. They're 72 and 52. They played much better lately. They're eight and two in their last ten. Uh, 13 game lead. I mean, nobody else in that division is even above 500. The Twins are seven games under, six games under 500 is the next best record in that division. It's a wretched division. We've talked about, I mean, how many bad teams are on baseball. I mean, again, the Orioles are 37 and 88. They're 51 games under 500. I mean, are you kidding me? 51 games under 500. The Royals are 38 and 87. The White Sox are 30 games under at 47 and 77. I mean, this, this is absurd. I mean, the Tigers are 51 and 74. It's 23 games under 500. It doesn't look that bad by comparison. I mean, the Mets are 16 games under at 54 and 70. So speaking of which, let's go over to the National League. So, you know, the, the closest division race in all of baseball right now well, there's two. There's the AL West, so we'll start there with the Astros and the A's. are both tied at 75 and 50. The Mariners are still hanging around at 72 and 54. Um, you know, we'll see. Look, they're, they're, the Mariners starting pitching ain't great, but neither are the A's. Although, talked about Ed, Edwin Jackson last week, and then Mike Fires, who they got from the Tigers uh, around the deadline, has pitched very well for them since he's come over there. And we talked about the A's bullpen last week. It's excellent. And they mash the ball. I mean, they're, they're the, they are this new model, right? They have a very good, very deep and good bullpen, and they hit a ton of home runs. That's what baseball is today. Like it or, you know, for better or worse, that's what it is. And then in the National League, in the National League, the West also is the best division race. You've got the Diamondbacks at 69 and 56. Rockies at 68 and 56. And the Dodgers, who are really in dire straits right now. They are reeling. They've, their bullpen has blown a ton of games. I think six out of the last seven games, their bullpen has either given, has given up a run to either tie, the, tie, that's either tied the game or put the Dodgers behind late in the game. You know, they just did get Kenley Jansen back, but he blew the game last night. He went on the DL with a, with a, heart, uh, a heartbeat issue, an irregular heartbeat issue. Uh, he came back off the DL last night, and, but he blew the game. So they're three and seven in the last ten. They looked like they were poised to take off and be the class of, of the AL West for sure, if not the whole National League. 
especially, you know, they got Manny Machado. They got Brian Dozier from the Twins, a power-hitting second baseman. You know, Kershaw's back. Um, but they are really uh, in a, hit a rough patch here. Whereas the Rockies have hit, played great, even on the road, although their bullpen is still a mess. Um, and then the Diamondbacks kind of keep plugging away with a pretty good bullpen and a deep lineup. And they feel the ball well. And then in the Central, you've got the Cubs, I mentioned, is 71-52. The Brewers, uh, they've won two in a row, but they hit a rough patch, too. They had the, for a while, they had the best record in the National League. Now they're 70-57. They're starting, their lack of starting pitching is really starting to catch up to the Brewers because the lineup is tremendous. I mean, Yelich, Kane, Aguilar. Uh, they got Moustakis from the Royals. He's hit well for them. Even, you know, Braun can, is, can still be dangerous from time to time. I mean, Brewers have a very good lineup. And their bullpen is very good, but the starting pitching is not particularly strong. Uh, and their bullpen is, ha, has sprung a few leaks even lately. Because, again, it's great to have a good bullpen. You use these guys every single day. Over the course of a long season, it starts to add up. And then the Cardinals are probably the hottest team in baseball right now. They were dead and buried. Now they're 69 and 57, and they just traded to get old friend Matt Adams back, also from the Nationals. So we would play the Nationals are in full sell-off mode now. They're one game under 500. They've blown a ton of leads. They're three and seven in their last 10. There's clearly something wrong over there, uh, and it'll be very interesting to see in the offseason what becomes of that team with Bryce Harper being a free agent if they're going to go into full rebuild mode do they trade Scherzer I mean you know you know, the Yankees would be front and center to try to get him watch watch the Yankees get Max Scherzer next year for like Clint Frazier who when healthy is a good player but hasn't been healthy ever uh, for like Clint Frazier Justice Sheffield and uh, you know Greg Bird. <laughs> yeah, they won't give up Andujar or Torres. Uh, you know, and, and, and Bird will stink for the Nationals, and, and Frazier will never see the field because he'll be hurt all the time. He'll have to retire early. And, you know, Sheffield will be like a, a number four starter. Watch. You know it's coming. All right, we're going to take a short break, and then we'll be back with the NFL right after this. All righty, we are back here on the second half of Jamal About Sports. So let's go over to the NFL, and uh, we'll touch on uh, the Detroit Lions, my Detroit Lions, to start. So two games in, two very subpar performances in a preseason. Now, granted, it's preseason. Typically, you don't make a big deal about it. You know, the records, the scores are certainly uh, meaningless, right? The number one rule for me for preseason is get through healthy, right? You want your starters and your key reserves to come through the preseason healthy. So, so far to that end, it's been a successful preseason for the Lions. Uh, They did, unfortunately, lose uh, one of their key special teams guys in Steve Longa in the game against the Giants. Um, But, um, again, you know, uh, no disrespect to him, but certainly it's not obviously the same as if he lost Matt Stafford. So, so far in that regard, it's been good. However, the big issue coming in the offseason was where are the line's going to get a pass rush from, and is the offensive line going to be demonstrably better than it was last year? Because it was a horror show last year. We've documented it 
plenty of times. So, you know, listen, Bob Quinn has invested a lot of resources via high draft picks and or free agents to try to fix the offensive line. And uh, if, fr- if last Friday night's game against the Giants is any indication, he has failed miserably. Because that offensive line, and look, I get it. Giants have a nice defensive front. I understand that. Olivia Vernon's a nice player. Snacks Harrison's a good player. He's more than a good player. He's a, one of the top D tackles in the league. I understand all that. But the Lions' offensive line against the Giants was non-competitive. Okay? Now, I want to hear about T.J. Lang, the right guard, wasn't playing. Well, part of being a good general manager is you have to have credible backups. And Joe Dahl, the Lions' backup right guard, can't play in this league. And Kerry Wiggins, or Liggins, or whatever his name is, who they signed as a free agent from the Chargers in the offseason, can't play in this league. Those guys are on roller skates. They're in the backfield on every play. And Taylor Decker, who was a first-round draft pick two years ago from Ohio State, supposed to be a stud, was awful. And Rick Wagner, the right tackle, who they gave a ton of money to in the offseason last year, who had a bad year, by the way, last year for the Lions, stunk against the Giants. He was terrible. And Graham Glasgow, the center, third-round pick out of Michigan, who you think that would be a good player, George is still very much out on him. And he didn't play particularly well against the Giants either. The entire offensive line was an embarrassment against the Giants. Awful. And then you go over to the other side of the ball, and look, I'm, I'm less concerned about the defense only in this regard. Patricia's not showing his hand. He's not scheming. Lines did, I don't think, did any blitzing at all. Right? So, you know, they did show some pressures. They got a sack fumble, which the refs somehow, I mean, they must have thought it was a regular season game because they overturned it, even though it was clearly a fumble. I don't see how in the world they could, or it was at least close enough. That it certainly was not enough evidence to overturn the call on the field. So, you know, maybe they're getting their, their screw jobs of the lines out of the way in the preseason first, hopefully. Probably not. Um, so they showed a little bit of life. I'm a little less concerned with that. But Jared Davis, the middle linebacker, still shows that he can't cover anybody as Wayne Goldman made him look silly for a touchdown. Juked him right out of his jock. So there's a lot of issues here. And look, I expect the Lions to struggle in the first four games of the season anyway. 0-4 is a distinct possibility. I would not be surprised at all by 1-3. I would sign up for 2-2 two two tomorrow. But you factor in the, fa- you factor in the lines have a, ta- a hard schedule. And I, I, by the way, I understand everybody's just gifting them and giving them all. Everybody in Lion Land, Monday night opener, home opener against the Jets, that's a, that's a win. Uh, I would not be so sure about that at all. Giants are better than you th- I mean, the Jets are better than you think. I don't care if they're starting a rookie quarterback. You think the Jets want to come out and, and lay an egg on national television? No. So that's the first game. Second game's at San Francisco. You mark that as a loss right now. Third game, home against the Patriots. Mark that as a loss right now. Fourth game, at Dallas. Never easy. Now, the Lions have had decent success in Dallas. 2014 playoff game notwithstanding. Uh, in recent history, although obviously they looked bad on that Monday night game against them a couple of years ago when no Darius Slay. But so two of the first four on the road, 
two national TV games, short weeks, got to go cross country after a short week, first opening week. Not an easy schedule. So I expected the Lions to struggle anyway. Tough schedule to start, plus team still adjusting to a new head coach. New style, new voice, new everything. New practice schedule, new scheme on defense. But what I've seen so far in the preseason is garbage. Flat out garbage. There's been about one bright spot in the preseason so far, and that's been Carrion Johnson. Of guys that I'm looking for something from. Now, Darius Slay played well against the Giants. I, I, I know who Darius Slay is. It's one of the top corners in the league. That doesn't excite me. You know, Tavon Wilson made a couple of hard hits. I, I, that's what he does. That's great. I mean, I'm glad. You know, Jared Davis made a couple of nice tackles coming downhill. That's what he's supposed to do. But the fact that he still can't guard anybody is, is alarming, frankly. So of the guys that I'm looking for something from, I didn't see anything yet. That old line, again, got pushed around all night long. And it didn't look much better in the first game against the Raiders either. So, look, I said this last year. You know, Bob Quinn, who everybody in Lionland loves, right? All the Lions fans, oh, hashtag and Quinn we trust. Exactly why? Because he worked for the Patriots? Because this is the same guy who told everybody that Larry Warford wasn't good enough to play for the Lions. We had to sign broken down old TJ Lang instead. Except Larry Warford started a right guard for the Saints last year, only the best offense in football. Oh, and then Riley Reef wasn't any good either. Then we had to flip him over to right tackle, which he's much worse at than left tackle. And by the way, anybody out there who thinks it's the same thing, you don't know anything about football. Playing left tackle, just because you're good at left tackle doesn't necessarily mean you're going to be good at right tackle. Some guys can do it, but not everybody can. And Larry, while Riley Reef was not, uh, you know, he wasn't Tyron Smith, he wasn't Jonathan Ogden, he wasn't Anthony Munoz, he was perfectly adequate, better than adequate. He was a solid left tackle for the Lions. They moved him to right tackle, drafted Taylor Decker, had an okay rookie year, showed signs, then was hurt for most of last year, and then when he came back, played poorly. Okay. But Riley Reeves somehow managed to start for the Vikings last year who made the NFC Championship game. I guess he's not that bad, huh? Managed to pass block well enough that Case Keenum ended up getting a big free agent contract with the Broncos. And the Vikings had one of the best offenses in, in the league last year. But those guys weren't good enough for the Lions. They couldn't play, according to Bob Quinn. Oh, and Lee Adrian Waddle is starting a right tackle for the Patriots. Now, granted, that's partly due to injury because they lost Isaiah Wayne in the preseason game. But nevertheless, if he wasn't any good, I don't think Bill Belichick would have him around. So three guys the Lions jettisoned because they, they couldn't play are all starting on teams that are much better than the Lions for offenses that are better than the Lions. Doesn't reflect well on Bob Quinn. Now look, I get it. It's 0-2, whatever. It's preseason. It's two games in preseason. Taylor Decker, give him credit. Didn't hide from it. Said, I played a terrible game. You won't see that again. That's all well and good. I appreciate him for being a stand-up guy. That's great. But this O-line better get its act together and fast. 
or else Stafford's going to get hurt. And then when that happens or if that happens, you can really forget it. Because what the Lions have at backup quarterback right now uh, is not NFL quality. Matt Castle may be a nice guy and Tom Brady's golfing buddy. He's a stink, stinky quarterback. Stinky. I mean, he's 36 years old. He wasn't any good even when he was supposedly good. Um, so uh, he's certainly not a guy that can come in and play a couple of games for you and start and expect you to win a game or even come off the bench in the game and hope you could win and rally the troops. Now, Jake Rudock had a nice preseason last year, showed some promising signs he's had a poor preseason this year. However, I'm not ready to give up on him yet just because he's played poorly behind a crap offensive line and in an offense that's been ridiculously, or I shouldn't say ridiculously, but an offense has been vanilla, which again, I'm fine with. Don't tip your hand. Don't be showing your gimmick plays. Don't be showing the world what you're actually going to do in a regular season, which again is why you can't read too much in to preseason, particularly the results. But when I see a guy just pass blocking mano a mano, there's, there's no scheme there. That's just one guy getting beat by another guy. That's what concerns me. Now, flipping over to the Giants, if you're a Giants fan, you have to be happy. Lorenzo Carter, who they drafted in the third round, who, by the way, the Lions had no use for because we had to trade up for a safety. Uh, I mean, the Lions could have taken, they couldn't have taken Carter in the third round. They could have taken him in the second round. They, they didn't have to trade up for on Johnson. Could have sat there, drafted Lorenzo Carter in the second round, and taken Royce Freeman in the third round, who's looked very good for the Broncos, running back out of Oregon in the preseason. Could have done that, which is, why, again, why I hate trading up. But I digress. Lorenzo Carter looked very good. Snacks looked good. Vernon looked good. This Kerry Wynn looked great. Another defensive lineman. B.J. Hill, who I loved coming out of NC State, looked very good. Now, did Ogletree get made look silly by Theo Riddick? Yeah, he does that to a lot of people. Don't worry about it. Jenkins looked good. Apple looked pretty good. And then, listen, I understand Eli's still your quarterback, but Davis Webb looked good. I mean, some of those passes he completed, the Lions D-backs actually were in really good position. He just put the ball in a perfect position. And Goldman looked very good. Should be a nice backup to Barkley. So, certainly reason for optimism for the Giants. And Will Hernandez, by the way, who I wanted the Lions to draft. And ironically, Frank Ragnow, the Lions rookie left guard, who played center and right guard in college, has looked pretty good. He looks to have been, so far, he's been the most solid of the Lions offensive linemen. But I still would have taken Will Hernandez over him because, you know, he's like a left guard and played it for um, four years and is a beast and he's 335 pounds and he plays with a mean streak, and I watched him absolutely wash out Sylvester Williams, one of the line's big free agent pickups this year, several times in that game. And Solder looked solid. Now, you got an issue on the right side. Again, just because Eric Flowers isn't playing left tackle anymore doesn't mean he's going to be good at right tackle, and he's not good at right tackle. That's going to be a major issue for the Giants this year. They're going to have to either find somebody to replace him or they're going to basically have to keep a tight end and, or back in a chip almost on every pass play or any, any pass play that's going to require, you know, 
uh, a certain amount of time for the receivers to get open because uh, he's not good. Now, in that Giants game, we saw this ridiculous new helmet rule rear its ugly head. Now, the intent of the rule makes sense, which essentially is they don't want players dropping their heads to initiate contact, okay? Head up, see what you hit. I get that. That's great in theory. That's how I was taught to tackle. That's how anybody who's ever played football has been taught to tackle. Unfortunately, when you're running as fast as you can and you're pursuing a ball carrier and you're trying everything in your power to get that guy on the ground, sometimes you don't really just think to yourself, oh, let me just head up, eyes up, let me run through the guy and make the tackle. It's physically impossible. So you hurl yourself at the guy, you do everything you can to try and bring a guy down. And we've seen a lot of these penalties called on plays that are not malicious, where it looks like a totally perfectly reasonable tackle. I mean, they're calling it, it's not head-to-head contact. In the Giants game, there was face-mask-to-face-mask -face -mask contact, they called it. They called it on Mark Herzlick, the Giants linebacker, when he's coming in on a pass rush against Theo Riddick. It was a ridiculous call. If anything, the call should have been on Riddick, but I wouldn't have called it on him either. I mean, the head goes down at some point. I mean, when you smack into a guy, even if your head's up initially, a lot of times it goes down just an inch or two. So they called it, made a ridiculous penalty on the Giants. Uh, I mean, it was a horrible call. Even by this new rules definition, it made no sense. But I saw a call on a guy, a guy hit a guy in the thigh. You know, he's playing, guy's running to the sideline, guy, you know, dives at his legs, makes a tackle, helmet, you know, grazes the guy's thigh, they called a penalty on it. I mean, are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? If you're going to do that, you can't have a sport. You can't have the sport. Richard Sherman summed it up pretty well. This guy who knows. He's played in the league a long time. He said it's idiotic and it's impossible to try to legislate out of the game what they're trying to legislate out of the game. That's a short version. And he's right. You can't have a sport. Again, it's well-intentioned. I understand you're trying to pr pr prevent head injuries. Everybody got very scared last year after the Ryan Shazier thing. I understand all that. But you can't legislate this stuff out of, the, out of the game. You can't. I saw in a Vikings preseason game, uh, former Lions linebacker, the hell is his name? Antoine Williams come on an on a, on a, on a outside linebacker blitz, sacked the quarterback. Perfect. Per, I mean, it wasn't a violent hit. wasn't vicious nothing. But because, you know, the golden boy Aaron Rodgers got the full force, the full weight, of the player on him and got hurt last year with that Hendricks hit, or Kendricks hit, rather. They've now instituted another new rule against the quarterback, so they called the penalty. The Vikings announcers are going bananas. And by the way, good on them, and they're 100% right. It was a ridiculous call. By the way, those Vikings announcers that do the preseason, I don't know who they are. They're very good. And I tried to look it up and couldn't find it. I think one's Ben Lieber, former linebacker. I think one's this guy named Paul Allen, who also does their radio stuff. Um, they are excellent. First of all, they, you know, look, they're total homers. I get it. But they're super knowledgeable. They really know their roster. They don't sugarcoat a lot of stuff. Not everybody in the Vikings is the greatest player ever. Like if you watch a Cowboys uh, production, by the way. Um, and uh, they know the other players, the other team's players as well. Uh, and they're not afraid to speak their mind. I, I was actually uh, uh, really enjoyable 
for, you know, I'm trying to scout my, my, my division opponents. So I'm watching the Vikings. By the way, the Vikings, second team defense better than Lions, first team defense. You talk about a defense that gets after it. And everybody on that defense tackles. Because that's Mike Zimmer. And that's what, he, that's what he demands. So anyway, uh, this helmet rule and this new full weight Full force or the full weight of the force or whatever they're calling it on, on the quarterback rule. I mean, you know who's going to be the guinea pig, right? You know who's going to lose a game for, uh, on this, and it's going to be the Lions. We know that's coming. Just book it. And here's, here's the ironic twist, though, to the Lions. It won't be a defensive play that costs the Lions a game. It's going to be like LeGarrette Blount pulling his way into the end zone for like a thrilling fourth and goal touchdown that seemingly is going to win the game and then it's going to be called a penalty because he lowered his head. You know it's coming, Lions fans. You just know it. So just accept it now. Let's just save all of our vitriol and hatred for the league and the officials when the time comes because we know it's happening. You know it's going to happen. The Lions are always the guinea pig for this stuff. And then they'll realize, oh, we should tweak the rule. Yeah, that's not in the spirit of the rule. It's not really what we meant. Mm. Sorry, guys. You lost the game. Oh, but we'll tweak it next year. And, of course, we would never call that on the Packers or the Patriots. Oh, and by the way, they've also now in the NFL trying to essentially get rid of kick returns. You can't double-team anyone anymore in blocking on kick returns. The distance between where guys are positioned and on what hashes they're allowed to line up now is different. You know what? Then just get rid of kickoffs. Just get rid of them. Just get rid of them. Now, I know that's cold and harsh, and a lot of guys in the NFL make their living on special teams and running down on kickoffs. But, I mean, this is, this is a joke, what they're doing now. Just get rid of them. Finally, I'll leave you with an update on the Maryland football situation. And it's now more than just football. So, thankfully, it would appear that the Maryland Board of Regents has voted to fire the President Wallace Lowe, that acting athletic director, Damon Evans, who was the acting athletic director, then got the job full-time after the previous athletic director, uh, Anderson, who was the guy who hired Randy Edsel and DJ Durkin and Mark Turgeon, among others. Uh, Kevin Anderson was his name. After he got caught trying to get another job while he still had the Maryland job and was put on leave uh, or took a hiatus or some nonsense, um, so Damon Evans, out. Wallace Lowe, President of Maryland, out. D.J. Durkin, out. And there's a very revealing article in the Washington Post today by Sally Jenkins about how something like 30 players in college have died in football players during preseason practice. Let me see if I can find it. I should have had it up. Apologies. But in any event, it's ridiculous what goes on in college football. And we know that. I mean, we know that. I said it last week. It's a cesspool. College athletics are a cesspool right now. Again, ooh, I'm, I'm DJ Durkin. 
I'm the CEO of the Maryland football team. Uh-huh. How'd that work out for you, DJ? Tough guy? I mean, listen. Of course, was it his intention for this to happen? No. Oh, hold on. Let me see what this says now. The University of Maryland has drawn criticism for his decision to reach a lucrative settlement with the football coach. Wow. What are they what are they doing now? Sorry, this is just coming in over the wire. Maryland football coach DJ Durkin. Oh, he's still under suspension. But he's still gonna get paid. Or no, is that the other is that the that's the other coach? That's the strength and conditioning coach. They're still gonna pay him his three hundred and fifteen grand. Alright. That's the wrong article, sorry. The bottom line is these guys are a bunch of lunatics. Um, and they think that you know, shaming guys and making them run sprints, which is what happened with this kid, Jordan Hicks. He was made to run, I think, 10, 110-yard sprints or something like that. I mean, first of all, what does that have to do with playing football? Is that teaching? Is that teaching football? Is that helping him in his technique? Is that helping him be a better football player? No. Of course not. Is an offensive lineman ever going to run 110 yards in a football game? No. Never. It's penal, plain and simple. It's punitive, plain and simple. That's all it is. It's a way to demean and shame. And there's no place for it. So get rid of the whole lot of them, as far as I'm concerned. All of them. Good riddance. All right, that's, that's going to do it for tonight's show. As always, thank you for listening. Check us out on SoundCloud, on iTunes. Twitter handle at Jamal about sport no S. Facebook page Jamal about sports. The website JamalAboutSports.com. Thanks again. Enjoy the sports. Until next week, peace out.